Chapter 18 A deep moan struck Kenneth's ears, as he pressed through the thick smoke engulfing Renton. The sound curdled his blood, not because the sound was loud, but because it was awful. He could hardly see beyond his own steps, yet could hear well enough to know that someone was in agony. Kenneth stepped forward. The path was familiar to him. It was Renton's path to the abbey. He had walked it before, for weddings and burials. As Kenneth moved ahead, the juxtaposition of the joy of Chorich's wedding and the sorrow of Droston's burial now held an eerie irony. His feelings were no longer of joy or sorrow, but anger, raw, palpable anger. Another groan sounded. Kenneth headed straight along the path to the abbey. To his right lay the burning remains of the tanner's shop. To his left stood the supply shop, one of the few buildings still standing. Renton's abbey was not far away. Kenneth eased forward, watching and listening, wondering if at any moment a viking would burst from the smoke in ambush. Kenneth righted himself and drew a deep breath. He gazed at the ruins of the town, and then his eyes eased downward to the ground. And there it was. Lying at his feet sat a gold cross, his gold cross. The same cross he placed around Arabella's neck as a promise of marriage. As he bent and lifted the necklace, he felt his anger growing like a monster inside him. He was angry, angry at himself for letting the Viking animals destroy his home and village, and for letting them manhandle his beloved Arabella. I should have never let this happen, I should have never let them touch you, Arabella, he whispered to himself. He tied the cross around his neck and realized how much he already missed her. It was then he vowed that he would return to her and place it upon her neck once again. Another groan woke him from his mesmerized trance. He paced forward and then stopped. Through the haze he surveyed the path in front of him, and his eyes found the gloomy visage of the abbey. The haze slowly cleared, and there in the grass, not ten paces from the humble structure, lay a man sprawled on his back. He hurried forward. It was Gilchrist. A long gash, likely from the blade of a sword, had opened the cleric's belly. Kenneth scanned the cleric's frame, looking for other wounds. Seeing none, he knelt in the stained red grass beside Gilchrist. Gilchrist released another agonizing groan. The laceration in his belly was deep enough to expose his entrails. His head tossed side to side, then his eyes clenched shut. Barring a miracle, his breaths were numbered. Kenneth grabbed the cleric by the shoulders and shook him, Gilchrist, it's me, Kenneth. Gilchrist's eyes opened, his breathing intensified. Spittle flew from his lips as he exhaled several breaths in rapid rhythm. He stared into the sky, gazing past Kenneth as if he was invisible. Gilchrist, can you hear me? Kenneth shook him again. Say something. The cleric gave no response. Gilchrist. Kenneth patted his cheek firmly. Gilchrist snapped from his stupor. His eyes focused on Kenneth, his pupils combing over his face. His stare held an ominous gaze, like thick dark, clouds hovering and stirring, yet his lips released no words, no sounds, not even a whisper. It was though he lay trapped in his body with no ability to speak. Kenneth lifted Gilchrist's head and pushed away the cleric's sweat-soaked bangs from his brow. Then a moan spilled from the clergyman's throat. His breaths came in an erratic, panicked pattern. He glanced down at his open belly and then back at Kenneth. A moment passed, and Gilchrist repeated the motion again with his eyes, looking down and then back at Kenneth. What are you trying to say? I don't understand. 
Kenneth eyed Gilchrist's stomach and glimpsed the cleric's hand, twitching above his waist and pointing with a crumpled finger. Turning sideways, Kenneth peered over his shoulder in the direction the cleric was pointing. The path north. Gilchrist's eyes widened. He panted, struggling in pain and wheezing as he breathed. Are you saying north? Did the men who did this head north? Kenneth asked in a loud voice as if the cleric were deaf. Did they take anyone with them, Gilchrist? A small curl formed on the edge of the cleric's mouth. Yes, north, they went north. Did they take Aidan, Nessa, or Mother? Gilchrist's mouth opened and he tried to speak, Nez. His breathing slowed and his lips fell straight. Gilchrist. Kenneth shook the cleric. Gilchrist. Gilchrist blinked slowly, and his gaze settled on the gold cross hanging from Kenneth's neck. Then his ice-blue eyes widened and froze in place like molten glass dipped in water. A frigid chill rushed down Kenneth's backside. Alas, the cleric's breathing relaxed. His eyes slowly shut, and he let go. Kenneth's horse blistered across the wet earth. The beast carried the angry Scot down the muddy trail tracing the northwest bank of Loch Lomond, a trail littered with hoofprints and wheel tracks. From the prints, Kenneth estimated the Vikings numbered well above a hundred. He wondered if he could catch them, and what he'd do if he did. With every hill he crested, his heart pounded and his stomach turned, wanting, and not wanting, to see the Vikings ahead of him. If he was fortunate, they would stop to rest or camp. Maybe he would see smoke from their fires. Yet with the sun just reaching noon, he figured the Viking raiders would not be camping soon. He pushed the horse forward, thankful he'd found the animal abandoned behind the abbey. As Kenneth rode, he couldn't suppress the myriad thoughts that screamed in his head. Arabella sitting alone on the horse, he couldn't take her with him. His home burned, destroyed. His mother and the others, where were they? His father, would he return in time to help? Gilchrist, staring at him while death came and stole him away. Aidan, and the guilt of leaving his younger brother to face the Vikings alone. Yet, in all this, he knew he had to push on. He had to find his family. The ground moved quickly beneath Kenneth. The green pines of Dalriada surrounded either side of the path north, yet they were lost from view. Kenneth remained absorbed in a world all his own. Was this what it was like to be a man, to be a warrior? He had seen his father heed the call and face battle, but he himself had never embarked upon the dreadful quest. His father had, Droston had. Kenneth's thoughts continued to churn. Vikings. How many? How far ahead would they be? They couldn't be too far. Carrying captives would surely slow them, and Aidan, he wouldn't go easy, he would fight every step of the way. The thought made Kenneth smirk. But his smirk quickly faded as he wondered if Aidan had gone at all. The old hermit found the spot he'd been looking for. The large rock crag on the hillside would hide him from view and veil him from any riders heading north. And the thirty yards separating him from the trail was still well within the range of his old crossbow. The trail running north and south along the western rim of Loch Lomond boasted dense patches of green pines. In most areas along the path, the pines grew nearly on top of one another, but here the pines thinned, some with long gaps stretching between them. The old hermit found an opening in the pines that suited him, a place where he could hide with a gap large enough to spy passing riders. 
The man had walked the trail a thousand times over the past forty years. And this was the spot he wanted. Through the opening in the row of pines, he could see the trail south for nearly fifty yards. To the north, he could see the trail for another ten yards before the pines thickened again and the trail curved out of sight. Once a rider passed and made the turn, the old man would become invisible in his rock crag. But it was the fifty yards to the south that gave him the line of sight he needed. The old man rested his crossbow against his knee, loaded it, and leaned back against the rocks. Then he waited. He had nowhere to go and nothing to lose. He figured they would be back this way, though he wasn't sure when. He was willing to wait. Time passed, and then the sound came. A low rumble echoed from the south. The thundering growl steadily grew to a roar that sounded something like a stampede of cattle. The hermit sat, watching motionless from the rocks. The first riders appeared from the south, donned with helmets and shields, axes and swords. He watched them come and let them pass. Dozens more followed. Occasionally, their numbers thinned with carts interspersed among the riders. The carts, and their human cargo, were surrounded and guarded by Viking horsemen. The riders and their horned helmets were an ominous sight. Their aura alone would terrify a rational man. But the old man was beyond rational. He had seen the horned savages in his younger days. The memory of their deadly raids years prior still crept among the dark places of his mind. They had taken from him, and now, he would take from them. He wasn't frightened by his enemy, but seeing the carts and the people inside sickened his stomach. Over a dozen captives were locked within each cart. Wooden posts, mounted a foot apart, extended up the sides of the carts, forming cages, veritable wheeled prisons. The women inside held one another, and most were crying. The men sat lifeless, covered in dirt and soot. Their hair was mangy and disheveled. They stared off into nowhere with a glazed look on their faces, seemingly resigned to some unspoken doom. Another cart passed the clearing in the pines, its captives weeping, wounded, and broken. The old man paused when he saw two younger Scots in the cart, young men holding on for their lives. One suffered severe burns on his shoulder and neck, and his head bobbed about as if fading in and out of consciousness. The other had a bloody wound along his ribs on his right side. A young woman was tending his injury, pressing a cloth against the wound to stop the bleeding. Several minutes passed, and still the stream of Vikings continued. The old man watched in silence as they rode by. Biding his time, he waited. The army of riders eventually thinned and the old man prepared himself. The last of the marauders would be passing soon. No more carts appeared. There had been three in total. The final riders rode in a detached line strung along the opening in the pines. There were five that trailed the pack, their horses spanning the fifty-yard gap. The old hermit lifted his crossbow and let his fingers wander to find their grip. His index finger nestled against the trigger. Two of the five riders reached the end of the gap in the trees and vanished around the curved trail. Only three remained in sight. The man lifted his bow and aimed the weapon at the last rider. He steadied his breathing. Calm, breathing, the hermit paused. Shouts from more horsemen came from the south end of the path. The old man glanced to his right and counted two additional riders. He slowly moved the bow to the rider in the rear. Seconds passed. The three front riders disappeared and the two trailing riders approached. The hermit drew a deep breath. 
he steadied his hands and aimed his sights. The riders were separated by roughly twenty feet. He locked on the rear rider. His calloused finger slowly pressed through the trigger in a calculated, fluid motion. The bow neither strayed nor bucked when it snapped its cord forward and released its arrow. With the bow sights tracking a foot ahead of the rider, the timing of the two forward-moving objects were set on a collision course. The arrow soared on its trajectory straight and true. Thunk! The silent shaft came to a sudden stop in the neck of the Viking rider. The arrow sunk deep, piercing the man's throat. The horned rider slid from his horse. His hands and arms twisted in the reins, entangling him and knotting him to his horse. The horse jerked sideways to fight the tugging weight, and then slowed and wandered past the opening in the pines, dragging its rider out of sight. The hermit grinned and cursed with exuberance. He rose to his feet and eyed the path, loitering in his rocky crag and wondering if the other riders would detect the slain man and return. He strained to listen. He heard nothing. He waited, guessing how far the horse may have carried on, dragging the man. Hoofbeats. The old man squatted in his crag. His heart pulsed. A thick blue vein running along his temple thumped with the beat of his heart. The salty sweat that beaded on his brow dripped into his eyes with a burn. He remained motionless, unflinching, cloaked in his hiding spot. The hoofbeats drew closer. The hermit loaded an arrow. The sound grew from the south. The old man lifted his bow. The drumming hoofbeats approached. A single trailing rider burst into the opening of the pines. Squaring his aim, the old man tracked the horseman and held him fixed in his sights. He would get to this day. The hermit steadied himself. His finger found the trigger of the crossbow and began its rehearsed progression. As he pushed the bow's lever he flinched in shock, a kilt, no helmet, a scot. The arrow was gone. The iron-tipped shaft drove hard into the shoulder of the galloping horse. The animal's front leg buckled, and the creature crashed to the ground, hurling its rider sideways. The rider struck the ground with a hard thump and tumbled several times on the dirt path, his limbs and torso flailing with each tumble. The old man gasped and hurried from the rocks toward the path. Lying on his side, Kenneth opened his eyes and gulped for breath. His impact with the ground had hit like a hammer against his skull. Confusion overwhelmed him. He sat up and shook his head to clear his vision. He staggered to his feet and fumbled for his sword. He tried to step but fell to his knees. Struggling, he lifted to his feet and craned his head to the left and right, searching for the enemy, but his eyes failed under the strands of disparate sunlight piercing through the towering pine branches. For a moment his ears became his eyes. He heard the sound of hurried footsteps, and he turned toward a blurry figure. It was a man, thirty paces from him. The man was coming quickly and was holding something at his side. Kenneth caught the glow of the man's white hair beaming in the sun's bright rays. Kenneth stood erect and lifted his sword. The man halted. Kenneth's vision began to clear, and he saw a crossbow in the man's hand. Your next arrow better kill me, old man. Kenneth shouted. The hermit surveyed Kenneth. It was clear the young Scot was desperate and angry. He dropped his bow and extended his hands. Son, I mean no harm. Do you count me a fool? Why the hell did you try to kill me? Kenneth leveled his sword. It twitched in his grip as he pointed it at the man. The hermit studied Kenneth, 
piecing clues together one by one. You were going after the Vikings, yes. The old man stated. Forgive me, son. I thought you were one of them. They came this way. I know they did. I've tracked them and I aim to kill them, so either kill me or stay out of my way. There's too many for one man, son. You might kill a few, but you'll die before you get them all. They have my family? What do you expect me to do? Why did you stop me? Kenneth made no attempt to control himself. I want him dead too, son. I was trying to kill him myself until you came through here. Fortunate for you, you don't wear a horned helmet. I tried to stop, but the arrow flew, I'm sorry about your horse. The old man glanced at the sprawling beast. The animal wouldn't survive. What have you done, I need that horse? Kenneth shouted. He panicked, realizing he was losing precious time, time he didn't have. I've got to go after them. Son, if you go after those Vikings in the condition you're in, they'll kill you in an instant. You won't help anyone. Let me give you some food, and water. You need to rest a bit and get your wits about you, the man said, still keeping his distance from Kenneth. Kenneth wiped his mouth with his wrist. He lowered his arm, and a long smudge of red lay smeared across the back of his hand. He didn't feel the blood resurface on his numb lip. When was the last time you ate or slept? Come with me. At least rest for a while. I'll see if I can find you some food and water, and a horse. The sun sat halfway between noon and dusk over Dalriada. Chorich and Donald led the group, riding side by side as they headed back to Renton. The deer they pulled on the wooden sled would be a welcome sight for those at home. The extra meat would be needed for the long trip north. The two brothers trotted ahead and teased one another while the others rode behind. Donald insisted his deer was larger than any of the three that Chorich had killed. Chorich disputed the matter and wouldn't concede an inch to his little brother. One hill to go, Alpin called out to his sons and then again to the men behind him. Les, the bowman from Milton, waved his hand from the rear of the line, signaling he'd heard. We should have the ladies bake some bread for our feast. Tonight we will eat like kings, Chorich said, and cheers erupted from the men as his horse crested the hill behind Donald's. Father! Donald shouted. Chorich's eyes shot up, and he stared beyond the hill at the ruins of his home. The sight struck him like a crashing wave. He ripped his dagger from his belt, turned in his saddle, and slashed the straps of his deer sled. Then he plunged his heels into his horse, and the beast rushed forward. Chorich arrived first and jumped from his horse. The others of the hunting party galloped past. He paid them no attention. A heap of ash and blackened wood were all that remained of his boyhood home. The barn no longer stood, but sat as a pile of embers with a thin trail of white smoke emanating from its charred remains. The wooden fence of the sheep pen was nearly destroyed, and no sheep were in sight. The stone well, alone, had survived the raid. Chorich hurried to the front of what had been his family's home. There he found the bodies of three dead Vikings baking under the mid-afternoon sun. Father, come see this. Chorich stared at the bodies, and a cascade of thoughts rushed through his mind. He spun, looking for his small home in the distance, afraid of what he might see. Across the field stood the humble dwelling he'd built for him and Siana. It peeked out from the distant tree line, unharmed. 
Go see if she's there, Chorich. Chorich broke from his gaze and turned to his father, who now stood over the three dead bodies. Someone will pay for this, Alpin muttered, then he stooped to inspect the bodies. He peered up Chorich. Go, check on Siana. See if your mother and the others are there. I need to speak to Donald. We'll be right behind you. Chorich mounted his horse and raced across the field. A multitude of fears weaved through his mind. He prayed that Siana was there, alive. And God, by your grace, may mother and the others be there, too, he uttered. Les caught Chorich and rode beside him across the field to the small home. The door to the house flung open, and Siana ran out, her hands lifting her dress from the ground as she ran. Her eyes were red and swollen, and tears flowed down her cheeks. Chorich, Chorich, they've taken everything, she yelled as she ran. Chorich stopped his horse and dismounted. He clutched Siana as she reached him and he held her tightly to his chest. She trembled in his arms. Les gasped in relief at the sight of his sister. He left the two alone and quickly trotted his horse in a wide arc around the outskirts of Chorich's dwelling. As Les disappeared behind the building, Ina's slight frame emerged in the threshold of Chorich's home. She stood motionless for a moment and then slowly stepped forward. Distress oozed from her countenance like sweat from her skin. It had been many years since Chorich had seen his mother in such a state. She approached Chorich and Siana, and the three clung to one another. Siana tried to speak, but her sobs muffled her words. Siana, shh, Chorich said. It's all right? Tell me what happened. Where are the others? Chorich, these men, these men, they came and they took Aiden and Nessa, Ina said. Chorich stared at his mother in disbelief, the color draining from his cheeks. Who took them? Where did they take them? Men with helmets, with horns on their helmets, Siana said. They came this morning and circled the house and set fire to it. I saw the men. They're dead. I saw their bodies, Chorich said, trying to calm Siana. Then he turned to his mother, you said they took Aiden and Nessa. Are you sure? Yes, we saw them. What's happened here? Alpin shouted. He dismounted his horse and helped Donald down from his. Donald touched the ground and sprinted toward his mother. Ina bent and Donald rushed into her arms. Mother, you're all right, Donald exclaimed and nestled in his mother's bosom. Our home is gone, mother. It's burned to the ground. Where are the children, Ina? Alpin said. Mother, where are Kenneth and Aidan and Nessa? Donald blurted out over his father, his voice laced with fear. Ina glanced at Alpin before fixing her eyes on Donald. She placed her hands on her son's cheeks and spoke gently, They're all right, Donald. They are not here now, but we will find them. Alpin stepped to Ina and placed his arms around her with Donald pressed between them. It was awful, Alpin. They took Aidan and Nessa. Aidan fought them, but they captured him and took him. They burned everything and took the children, Alpin. They took them. Ina cried between quivering lips. What about Kenneth? Alpin asked. What happened to Kenneth? He went to see Arabella last night. He never returned, Ina replied. I don't know if he's in Cashel, or if Cashel was attacked as well. Are you certain Aidan and Nessa are alive? 
The three of us were outside when they came. Siana was here. They came with torches and swords, there were several of them. One of the men grabbed me, and Aiden tried to stop him. The two started fighting, and I was pushed to the ground. There was more fighting, and they were moving through the fire and I heard them yell out. Oh, Alpin, there were too many of them, they took Aiden and Nessa. Ina leaned her face into her husband's chest and she broke down and sobbed. Alpin held her and gazed back at the blackened ruins of his home. Chorich stared at his parents, fighting back the boiling blood coursing through his veins. Father, we must find Kenneth. And we must get the men and go after Aiden and Nessa. Chorich, we will find them, Alpin replied. Les rounded the corner of Chorich's home. It's clear. No sign of the enemy, he yelled. They can't be far, Chorich, Alpin said with a sober anger in his eyes. We'll find your brothers and sister, and we will bring them home.